Madani, and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. Before I launch into this week's topic, I just wanted to say what a truly lovely group of podcast listeners you are. Sometimes I get so busy with the research that I don't pay attention to the Facebook page or the reviews on the various platforms, then I remember and have a quick look. There have been some wonderful encouraging comments again this month, and I want to let you know how happy they make me and how grateful I am to you for taking the time. It can be a bit of a pain logging in to leave a review, so it's really appreciated. And to my few Patreon supporters, thank you, thank you, thank you for your generosity. I'm so grateful for your commitment and support, and I think about you every time I access or buy reference materials for the show. I hope, in giving up that monthly coffee to fund the show, that you get some other kind of buzz every time a new episode comes out. You help make it happen. So, mwah, mwah, thanks. <laughs> now, this month we're going to be looking at the Eureka Rebellion, the Eureka Stockade, the Eureka Uprising. This is a story that most of us know, at least to some extent. It's another one of those stories that can, and has over time, been told from a number of perspectives, each giving us a different view of the causes, the protagonists, the outcomes, and the impact it had on the future shape of Victoria and Australia. For those who are unfamiliar with the Eureka story, or barely remember it, the National Museum, in one of their Defining Moments publications, describes the Eureka Rebellion as a significant event in the development of Australia's representational structures and attitudes towards democracy and egalitarianism. So, it was an event that helped shape the evolving society as Australia moved from being a penal colony to a self-determined democracy. The Eureka Uprising began when gold miners from the Victorian town of Ballarat, angry about the way the colonial government had been administering the gold fields, burned their expensive and much-hated mining licences in an act of defiance against the authorities. Feeling they had been unfairly and aggressively treated by the Goldfields police and ignored by the unresponsive authorities, they moved on from fruitlessly making endless petitions and resolutions to the governor, instead to make a stand and physically defy the authorities prepared to fight for their cause. The situation became so grave at the end of November of 1854 that miners from all over the district came together at Bakery Hill near Ballarat and built a defensive stockade where they prepared for a physical confrontation with the goldfields, police and troopers. In the stockade, they swore allegiance to the newly designed Southern Cross flag and many, wanting more than just an improved approach to the regulation and policing of the goldfields, pledged to fight to defend their rights and liberties, including demanding access to land and the right to vote and be represented in the Parliament. The government, however, seemed to be spoiling for a fight, wanting to put these rowdy miners back in their place, and no negotiations were offered. Instead, early on the morning of Sunday 3rd of December, when the stockade was only lightly guarded, many men having returned to their accommodations for the Sabbath, government troops attacked the stockade. As a result, at least 27 people lost their lives, and later 13 of the survivors were tried for sedition and treason. But it's a much more detailed and complicated story than that overview suggests, and I look forward to exploring that with you over the next few episodes. 
First, this episode, I want to look at the history of gold in Australia and then focus on the goldfields of Victoria. We should meet some of the colonial decision makers and consider some of the elements of the pre-gold rush society which the authorities and the miners themselves were grappling with as the physical and cultural landscape changed. In the following episodes, then, we'll look at the details of the uprising itself and I would like to consider its aftermath and its effect on the young colony and then to finish off by taking a look at what life was like for a gold miner. So first up, today, let's talk about gold! Gold in Australia is said to have been discovered by Edward Hargraves early in 1851 at Lewis Pond Creek near Bathurst in New South Wales. According to writer and comedian Ben Popji, Hargraves came to Australia aged 16, quote, in search of a quick buck, only to find the whole place depressingly fixated on sheep. He scraped a living as a farm worker at Bathurst and for a while gathered sea cucumbers in the Torres Strait before realising what strange behaviour this was. He then moved on to the respectable profession of failed farmer, before marrying a merchant's daughter, unquote. And though her funds did allow him to buy a hotel, in the end he was lured away to the Californian goldfields to see if there was an easier way to build a fortune than the graft required in running a pub. Popty also suggests Hargrave's, quote, burning ambition had always been for a life of lucrative sloth, unquote. It's interesting how many men headed off to the goldfields thinking they could make an easy buck when in reality the majority of even the successful gold prospectors generally had to work very hard in primitive, exposed and uncomfortable conditions just to try their luck. They often left their homes and families to make their way to a goldfield that was, or soon would be, crowded, dirty and noisy, and there undertake back-breaking manual labour, very often for little return. I suppose, though, the temptation and possibility of a lucky strike was always there, and those first on the goldfields may well stumble across the easy surface deposits on arrival, but possibly most attractive... At least their prospecting work, no matter how backbreaking, was self-directed, rather than at the behest of some overseer or boss man. For the men who stayed on in the goldfields, this autonomy was an important element and would feed into the Eureka Uprising when it was evolving. The gold rush that was to come after Hargrave's discoveries did not actually mark the first gold found in Australia but rather the first likely viable gold deposit reported to the government post the California rush, which by then had whetted gold prospecting appetites all over the world, encouraging a completely insatiable and uncontrollable desire for getting rich quick. But while previous finds in Australia had been noted, they were pretty much ignored. Gold was a dangerous thing to have in a country full of convicts, controlled by only a small number of redcoats and troopers. It could lead to major trouble, maybe even anarchy. Such discoveries would have to wait until the country transitioned to a more balanced population, or, as it turned out, until the discovery could no longer be suppressed. 
Once the Californian rush had taken hold of the world's imagination, there was little prospect of keeping any Australian gold discovery a secret any more. And so at that point, the colonial government was virtually forced into finally acknowledging the next reports, and then jumping on the resources bandwagon. The Indigenous Australians are likely to have at times come across the metal, of course, but they appear to have taken no interest in mining and working it, gold being superfluous to their long-established cultural practices, though there is evidence of them quarrying for other resources they were interested in, such as ochre or obsidian. One of the early convict arrivals reported finding gold in August 1788, but his claim was a hoax. The gold specks that he had showed the officers were in fact shaved off a guinea coin and his brass belt buckle. You've got to give him points for trying, though. He was, of course, punished for his fraud with a hundred lashes. Turns out he was pretty poor at all sorts of deception, being caught and hanged later that year for theft. But, as is the way with these things, despite the clear evidence of fraud on the coin and the belt buckle that he had manufactured the whole story, the idea of gold was so attractive there were convicts who continued to believe that he had actually found gold and then made up the hoax story to avoid disclosing its location. Oh my gosh, there's just no winning with these conspiracy scenarios, is there? There were rumours that in 1814, a convict working on the road out to the Blue Mountains had found gold, and that likelihood was reinforced in 1820 when a naturalist from the Bellinghausen Scientific Expedition, actually, on a 12-day exploration of the Blue Mountains, also claimed to have seen gold-bearing ore in that area. 15th of February, 1823, Assistant Surveyor James McBrien noted in his field survey book for that date that he found numerous particles of gold convenient to Fish River, southeast of Bathurst. In 1839, Count Strzelecki was undertaking a geological exploration of the colonies and reported that he discovered, quote, a very small quantity of gold sufficient to attest its presence, insufficient to repay its extraction, unquote. But the New South Wales governor, George Gibbs, requested he keep this information secret, quote, for fear of the serious consequences, considering the condition and population of the colony, unquote. In other words, if the country, full of convicted felons, is told there is gold for the taking, we are all in very serious trouble. February 1841 saw Reverend Clark discover gold near Hartley in New South Wales. Finding a couple more specimens over the following years, he brought them to the attention of Governor Gibbs in April of 1844, no doubt to another frosty response. Also in 1844, a shepherd from the Wellington district was reported to have amassed gold to the value of 200 pounds sterling, obtained over the previous year, just from breaking quartz in the ground surface while he was tending his flocks. So by that date, the rumours were being shared, at least. A W.B. Smith also sent some specimens from the Berrima area to the colonial officials, offering to identify the place where he'd found them on payment of a substantial reward but they refused to pay a large sum up front, and Smith then decided to keep his fine to himself. Pittman, in his Australian Minerals Report of 1901, noted that in 1849 a shepherd boy had also reported a find in the Pyrenees in the Port Phillip district, the year that Governor Gipps was replaced by Charles Fitzroy. But it was Hargraves in 1851 who was credited with all the glory of Australia's first recognised gold find, 
and the resulting rush. While Hargraves may not have made his own lucrative strike in California, he did return to Australia in 1851 with a plan to find gold and promote a homegrown rush back in Australia. And his timing was perfect. Governor Gipps had been replaced by the more hedonistic Charles Fitzroy. The public was now primed by the amazing gold rush in California. And many men were returning from the American fields with a better knowledge of the geology required for finding gold and the panning, cradling and mining skills needed to extract it. The Californian finds and the ensuing gold rush there were incredibly important in fueling the resulting rush in Australia. Gold was first found in California at Coloma, around 58 kilometres or 36 miles northeast of Sacramento in 1848. By 1849, the word had spread, bringing 300,000 prospectors flooding into the area. The Californian gold fields became notorious as lawless places, the quintessential Wild West. When the rush started, California was still technically part of Mexico, and even after becoming part of America, it remained for some time without any civil and judicial structures, a place with little in the way of functioning laws and civil infrastructure. But in an era when the sea transport was now available to the public, eager punters came in from all over the world, as well as from across America, and fortunes were made in the self-regulated American goldfields. Australians, being known as keen gamblers, were amongst those heading to the Californian goldfields in large numbers to try their luck. As many as 11,000 post-convict free men, as well as native-born Aussies, made their way to America. They then returned to Australia with a taste of the goldfields' life, but also the experience of the unstructured social system operating in the republic that was America. They were living amongst American men, without much of the hierarchical control structure that the British liked to promote. In the beginning, it looked like many would strike it rich on the Californian fields, but, as is common, easy pickings disappeared fast, and miners had to labour hard to work their claims. But even those without great success returned having at least learned the skills of prospecting and the idea of finding a goldfield at home was an attractive one. Aiming to find the metal here and noting that the Bathurst area had some geological similarities to the Californian goldfields, Hargraves and his colleague John Lister did locate some small deposits and specks of alluvial gold when they began searching. And a little later... A couple of local lads, James and William Tom, were also recruited to scour the area, and it was actually the Tom brothers that found the first two viable nuggets on April 17, 1851. And they told Hargraves, in line with the agreement they had previously established, and with that information, he did indeed promote the first homegrown gold rush in New South Wales. Despite his arrangement with the others, Hargraves, more eager to be praised and rewarded for the discovery of the gold find rather than actually preserve the field and work it himself, reported the find to the colonial secretary for validation of the samples actually being gold, which was confirmed in May of 1851. He then shared that news with the Sydney Morning Herald and they published it for everyone to see. Interesting to note, though, is that a correspondence was published also in the Sydney Morning Herald, three days later, which questioned the veracity of their report that Hargraves was the first to discover gold. But no matter who was the discoverer, by May 15th, newspaper reports were promoting the very gold field northwest of Bathurst that Hargraves had pointed them to, and which he had named Ophir. 
He reported that, in this area, the extent of gold was much more numerous and with larger particles than any area he knew of in California, making it potentially a very lucrative field. By then, 300 or so men had already made their way to Ophir, and many more hopeful men would soon spill out prospecting into the surrounding areas. And so the Australian gold rush had begun, with spectacular finds further stimulating the gold fever. Primed by the stories of rich pickings they had been hearing about from the California diggings, city workers and squatters' labourers alike took off to Ophir and surrounds, and almost immediately the colonial secretary was looking to introduce some mechanism to control and manage the rush and the exodus of working men from their existing jobs to the goldfields. The first step was to remind the public that under British law, all minerals, including gold, belong to the Crown. The New South Wales archives note that on the 22nd of May, 1851, a proclamation was issued stating, quote, that all mines of gold and all gold in its natural place of deposit within the territory of New South Wales, whether on lands of the Queen or of any of Her Majesty's subjects, belong to the Crown, and that all persons who take from any lands within the said territory any gold, metal or ore containing gold, or who within any of the wastelands which have not yet been alienated by the Crown shall dig for and disturb the soil, in search of such gold, metal, or ore, without actually having been duly authorised in that behalf by Her Majesty's colonial government, will be prosecuted. And by the way, God save the Queen! Then a licensing system was introduced to assert the Crown ownership and to control and tax those who sought to gain from the Commonwealth assets. The New South Wales archives also recorded the following day the gold regulations that were proclaimed, and a commissioner was appointed to carry the regulations into effect. The regulation stated that no person was permitted to dig, search for, or remove gold on or from any land without first taking out and paying for a licence. Rules adjusting the extent and the position of land were covered by each licence, and a fee was charged for the issue of a licence. The Gold Commissioner was responsible for issuing the licence and collecting the fee, as well as settling disputes over claims and water, and establishing the basis of law and order in the goldfields. Recorded as, quote, provisional regulations in relation to licences to dig and search for gold, unquote, the proclamation stated, His Excellency the Governor, with the advice of the Executive Council, has been pleased to establish the following provisional regulations under which licences may be obtained to dig, search for, and remove the same. 1. From and after the first day of June next, no person will be permitted to dig, search for, or remove gold on or from any land, whether public or private, without first taking out and paying for a licence in the form annexed. 2. For the present, and pending further proof of the extent of the goldfield, the licence fee has been fixed at £1.10 per month, to be paid in advance, but it is to be understood that the rate is subject to future adjustment as circumstances may render expedient. 3. Licences can be obtained on the spot from the Commissioner who has been appointed by His Excellency the Governor to carry these regulations into effect and who is authorised to receive the fee payable thereon. 4. And this one's interesting. No person will be eligible to obtain a licence or the renewal of a licence unless he shall produce a certificate of discharge from his last service 
or provide to the satisfaction of the commissioner that he is not a person improperly absent from hired service. 5. Rules adjusting to the extent and position of land to be covered by each licence, and for the prevention of confusion and the interference of one licensee with another, will be the subject of early regulations. 6. With reference to lands alienated by the Crown, in fee simple, the Commissioner will not be authorised for the present to issue licences under these regulations to any person but the proprietors or persons authorised by them in writing to apply for the same. Now, I don't quite understand that language, but I'm assuming it is limiting access to squatters' lease lands, for example. Not sure. By His Excellency's command, E. D. Thompson, Colonial Secretary's Office. And the licence document itself contained the following, quote, The bearer having paid to me the sum of one pound ten shillings on account of the territorial revenue, I hereby license him to dig, search for, and remove gold on and from any such crown land within the county of Bathurst, as I shall assign to him for that purpose, during the month of X, 1850X. This license must be produced whenever demanded by me, or any other person acting under authority of the government. Unquote. The licensing system was immediately unpopular and was to become the catalyst to much unrest on the goldfields across the country over time. For the working man, the prospect of upping sticks to the goldfields was attractive for a number of reasons, not least that one might immediately make a huge fortune, and some did, but also that a working man could now be working for himself, gaining all the reward for the effort put in, out from under the yoke of the bosses and the system. Some perhaps would be unaware just how much hard work most would have to undertake in the fields, but undertaking that hard graft for the benefit of themselves and their families, rather than a middleman, a squatter or a business, in return for a meagre wage, was still an attractive option for many. And so off they went, in droves, often on foot, with rudimentary tools and supplies to try their luck. The New South Wales Governor, Charles Fitzroy, having by then replaced the cautious and gold-adverse Sir George Gibbs, rewarded Hargraves, as the discoverer of the lucrative gold deposits, despite that assertion actually being questionable. And Hargraves received the coveted glory and kept the reward for himself, having failed to acknowledge or honour his agreement with Lister and the Tom brothers. Hargraves had now made his desired fortune, without having to work hard himself, and the kudos he gained ensured that he was given the task of finding more. Two years later, being given a lucrative £10,000 per annum post as Commissioner of Crown Lands, which came with a pension for life. Not a bad gig if you can get it. So Pobji was right. Hargraves did reach the level of financially comfortable sloth that he desired, while thousands of men tried to eke out a living on the expanding goldfields across the country. In the years that followed, an official inquiry did find that his early colleagues in the hunt for gold were actually instrumental in the discovery. But by then, Hargraves was well entrenched in the psyche of Gold Rush fans as the man. And besides, he'd already got the dough, possession being nine-tenths of the law and all that. The Californian Gold Rushes had been big news all around the world and had had a big impact in Australia. The economic flow-on advantages from the gold finds were clear to the lucky individuals and to the governments. 
But while the New South Wales government did offer a reward for finding gold there, they were still somewhat ambivalent about what a homegrown gold rush might bring. Certainly, they were concerned about the lawlessness that might result, and the costs associated with managing the sudden influx of transient people and providing services and security needed in a gold economy. The Californian gold fields had by necessity experienced a level of self-government, and there was a degree of vigilante policing and outright crime operating in the gold fields, so it could get a bit rugged, and this of course was a concern for the Australian authorities. In the 1850s, many in Australia were armed with guns and other lethal weapons as the Americans were in California, and the authorities here were aware of the need for order and visible policing on the fields and on the roads leading to and from the goldfields, and the necessity for regulating the use of the local environments and providing dispute resolution amongst the many other requirements of a civilised society. For example, aside from the expected disputes over claim positions, it would soon become apparent that panning and sluicing for gold completely trashed the watercourses, and clean water was a necessity for everyone. So if the authorities were somewhat heavy-handed, we can see there would have been some genuine anxiety about how the goldfields could easily get out of control, and there certainly would be much increased government costs in providing the required additional oversight and planning in those goldfields. Predictably, there was also the political anxiety and the economic double-edged sword that would come with the discovery of gold. There was a lot of disquiet and political pressure from the squatters and the business owners once they saw their workers deserting for potentially greener pastures. The licence cost, of course, worked as an expensive deterrent, really, and they added that provision about the licence only being issued to those who could prove they had left their previous employment with appropriate notice and in an orderly and acceptable way. So it was intended not only to raise revenue and as a mining claim regulation system, but also for social engineering too, in restricting who was allowed to take up prospecting and encouraging labourers to stay in their existing employment. These control measures added to the disgruntlement that would lead to the Eureka Rebellion in the years to come. And the cost of the licence very quickly became a point of resentment. It was inherently unfair in its demand for payment up front before any gold could be found, and just as the prospector was having to spend more money to gather equipment and provisions before any sod was even turned. These regulations seemed much more like a barrier deliberately designed to keep the poor working classes off the fields. The high licence cost was soon deemed unfair and unreasonable by those working in the goldfields, but also by other members of the public, judging by the press reports. Public meetings of several thousand persons at a time were already being held to discuss the regulations. One meeting reported in the Bathurst Free Press lasted two hours and passed several resolutions to be forwarded to the Executive Council of the Government for consideration, including, quote, that the present system of licensing is unjust in principle as being a tax upon labour and not upon produce, unquote with the proposer arguing that every commencement at digging was merely a trial which might or might not be successful. The second resolution stated that, quote, The present licence is exorbitant in amount, and the present mode of collecting is unnecessarily vexatious, unquote. 
This proposer further stated that he had no objection to paying a tax, but that in its present formula it looked as if the government wished to exclude poor men from the diggings. While there were many in the early weeks who did strike it rich and came away with income far beyond what they could have made in any other line of work, Ophir turned out to be a poor prospecting site after all, with limited useful gold found once large numbers descended there. Just to note, Australia was, in the future, going to yield some truly astoundingly productive gold fields. Hargrave's Ophir, though, as it turned out, was not going to be one of them. But even as other sites were found and the digging spread, still only some prospectors made exceptional money, and yet all were expected to pay the same fee. It appears pretty obvious that a system based on taxing actual fines may have been fairer, but policing and management of a system like that seemed beyond the imagination of the powers that be. Still, the lure of the potential was still enough for most to want to pay the money and give it a try at least, and despite the grumbling, numbers arriving on the New South Wales goldfields continued to swell, pulling in working men from their previous places of employment and creating panic for the bosses. Soon there were other, more lucrative fields being discovered. Many of the first finds were merely alluvial gold, grains being washed into creeks and old creek beds. Then nuggets began being found, again washed into the alluvial plains or embedded in quartz outcrops. While in the early days much was found on the surface or within easy digging, later lucrative deposits often came from tracing the quartz leads underground in true mining. Other New South Wales finds were numerous and included places such as Braidwood, Forbes, Young, Parks, but probably the most notable was a rather stunning find near Mudgee to the north of Bathurst. Aboriginal stockman Jimmy Irving had heard his station owner and other hands constantly talking excitedly about the news of gold in the district, and late in June 1851, Jimmy literally stumbled across a nugget embedded in quartz while out tending sheep. He thought the find would be of interest to his boss, Dr. William Kerr. On returning with Jimmy, Kerr was amazed to discover it was in fact gold, and a nugget so large they needed to break it in half just to manhandle it into the cart. The collection of ore they gathered there weighed 106 pounds, and Kerr immediately sold 103 pounds of it for the huge sum of 4,140 pounds. Then, rewarding Jimmy and his offsiders with his own stock and horses, rations and other useful equipment. It was a massive haul, but soon the government was after him for stealing a nugget that belonged to the Queen. Particularly as he'd held no licence at the time of the find, and the gold commissioner demanded that he and the dealer who had purchased it return the gold to the government. There was a fair bit of legal back and forth, and in the end the commissioner settled for a negotiated royalty payment rather than claiming the entire find. Now, while Jimmy Irving and Dr Kerr's find was impressive in size, the largest Australian nugget recorded to date, said to be one of the two largest in the world, would eventually be found in 1869 near Bendigo in Victoria by John Deason and Richard Oates. It weighed between 78 and 97 kilograms, or around 3,400 ounces, and there is some wiggle room in that weight quoted as some sources differ. Apparently, there was no scale capable of weighing it at the time, and, travesty alert number one, they broke it into three pieces to weigh. The welcome stranger, as it became known, earned them approximately £9,380, 
which Wiki claims at today's equivalent would be more than $5 million, or about $3.4 million in US. And it was soon afterwards, travesty alert number two, melted down into boring old ingots. But in 1851, the gold-digging fun was just beginning. Once again, with his sharp eye, Pobgy reflected, quote, Suddenly, Australia was no longer just a place to send criminals and inept military personnel. It was also a place to pull stuff out of the ground, a process that remains ongoing, unquote. <laughs> Very clever. And before long, it was Victoria's turn to experience a gold rush. The district of Port Phillip, to the south of New South Wales, began consolidating colonial settlement there in 1835, and the great desire for more land saw the area booming for farming, particularly squatters pushing out west, with Geelong becoming a major centre for development, indeed rivalling Melbourne in the early days. The incoming squatters continued to claim land around the area and very quickly built their wealth in the district. Noting the unstoppable development, New South Wales Governor Gibbs appointed Charles Latrobe as the superintendent for the district of Port Phillip in 1839. By the 1840s, the locals had begun petitioning the Crown to separate their district from the New South Wales colony. The British Act of Parliament separating Port Phillip District from New South Wales and providing it with a constitution was signed in 1850 by Queen Victoria and the new colony came into being when the New South Wales Parliament passed the required legislation on July 1st, 1851. Latrobe then became Lieutenant Governor of the new colony of Victoria, named after Queen You-Know-Who. <laughs> but just as all this joyous legal wrangling was taking place, that New South Wales gold rush had started, and Port Phillip, afterwards Victoria, began losing its workforce to the rush north too. Melbourne and Geelong were emptying out. Men were making their way to the New South Wales goldfields. As had happened in New South Wales, the Victorian squatters and employers were unhappy about the workers' desertions and were lobbying hard to their new governor to get more regulation in place to further restrict the capacity of their men to join the rush. But paradoxically, they also wanted the gold money for the new Victoria too. In an odd attempt to avoid losing population to New South Wales and instead keep Victorian diggers in Victoria and somehow profit from the gold fever, a group of Melbourne businessmen and squatters held a meeting to discuss how to stop the loss of men from Victoria. Their astounding solution was to offer a reward of £200 to anyone who could find a viable gold deposit within 200 miles of Melbourne. The new Victorian government and Governor Charles Latrobe went one better, and they offered £10,000 for a viable gold discovery. While those deserting to New South Wales may divert to the Victorian fields if they were available, thus stopping the labour hemorrhaging out of the state, they also knew that a gold find in Victoria would bring immigrants into the colony, increasing the value of their land holdings, and if you could sell the diggers something on the way to the fields, all the better for you. And so now everyone was on the lookout for gold in Victoria too. As in New South Wales, there'd been early reports noted in the then Port Phillip district, but they were greeted with the same lack of enthusiasm by the authorities. It was claimed that a Port Phillip squatter, Henry Anderson, had found gold on his property, but threw it away, not wanting a rush on his land, one assumes, and this might indicate just how lucrative squatting and stock running was for the lucky few who had nabbed land first. Who needs to dig for gold? 
There were several reports, including in April of 1851, of gold finds in the Castlemaine area. In June, gold was recorded at Warrandyte, then east of Melbourne, but now a suburb. But it was James Esmond's find of payable gold at Clunes in July of 1851 that really got the ball rolling in Victoria. The next notable find was by Thomas Hiscock in Bunningyong, just south of Ballarat. A comment from the Geelong publication from September 29, 1851 stated, quote, The whole town is in hysterics, gentlemen foaming at the mouth, ladies fainting, children throwing somersaults, and all this on account of the extraordinary news from Bunningyong. On Saturday afternoon, two gentlemen arrived from the goldfield, bringing the bewildering intelligence that a party of six had procured, in one day, nine hundred pounds worth of gold. Unquote. Soon after the Bunningyong goldfields kicked off, Regan and Dunlop found excellent quantity and quality gold in the Ballarat region too. Ballarat was becoming one of the most productive and reliable goldfields and the first gold commissioner, Francis Doveton, arrived there soon after, in September of 1851. By December, Mount Alexander, Castlemaine and the Bendigo fields were also operating. Bendigo was to become the most lucrative site in Victoria, indeed in the world, with mining continuing profitably there into the 1950s. And the find there is credited to one Margaret Kennedy, so it's excellent to see that the ladies are getting down and dirty in the hunt for gold too. <laughs> Later, there were productive gold fields operating in the valleys of Victoria's northeast. And for those of you who listen to the Kelly series, you might remember the Chinese man, Ah Fook, that young Ned assaulted, who was thought to have been working a gold claim in the Buckland Valley nearby in the 1850s, long before his run-in with Ned. There were productive diggings at Warrandyte and Warburton, east of Melbourne, along the course of the Yarra River, and in the mountainous township of Walhalla in Gippsland, for example. So there were certainly plenty of opportunities for the fortune hunters. And many other sites were later found across other Australian states and territories, some still viable and extracting gold to the present day. We might talk about this a little more in the final episode. So for Victoria... Once people started looking in earnest, goldfields were opening up all over too, and as word spread, men were now rushing to the Victorian goldfields. But the businessmen and squatters were no happier. As Pobji put it, quote, As more and more people flocked to Ballarat, the Victorian government worried about the effect on the colony. Melbourne was being drained of its population, and businessmen suddenly realised that even if your employees ran away to Ballarat rather than Bathurst, they're still... Oh, you know, gone. Unquote. Uh, you have to admit, he's right. <laughs> what a bunch of dunderheads. Still, gold rushes were by now the metaphorical, unstoppable train. Every man and his dog would be walking about with their heads down, kicking the ground as they go, just in case. The pressing task for the Victorian governor was to quickly instigate considered, fair and reasonable regulations that could assist in managing the gold fields, getting a fair share of the resulting income for the Queen and addressing the needs of their citizens on and off the gold fields. So you may not be entirely surprised to note, instead of coming up with a reasonable system, they simply copied the New South Wales approach, with the heavy-handed licensing fee and regulations and added even more heavy-handed policing, so it was indeed no surprise that tempers would fray before too long. 
Victorian Lieutenant Governor Latrobe published his proclamation in a supplement to the Victorian Gazette on Saturday, August 16th, saying much the same as the New South Wales Governor had, reminding the good people of Victoria that any and all gold in its natural state belonged to Queen Victoria, and that anyone prospecting without appropriate permissions would be prosecuted. The promised regulations and licensing information from the Colonial Secretary's Office was duly followed in the Gazette on Wednesday, August 27th, and they were almost verbatim the New South Wales regulations, as I read them earlier. While once again the authorities tried to control and limit who could move to the diggings, by means of hard financial penalty and bossy labour regulations, men just made their arrangements and took off anyway. And despite their initial interest in the expected influx of immigrants to backfill the jobs and increase the property owners' rental incomes and buy the businessmen's goods and services, the existing elites were, I think, perhaps a little shocked by the gold-led economic boom and the resulting inflation, which made everyday life a little less predictable and a little more, well, alarming. Even minor things like finding a taxicab in Melbourne became difficult, as their prices rose when they could be paid grand fees for carting around the newly wealthy gold diggers who would reward them with large tips. In the months to come, the new wealth of the successful miners opened the doors of many pricey and previously exclusive establishments to any Yahoo filthy digger who was lucky enough to strike it rich. Gold wealth meant old divisions between rich and previously poor were weakened, perhaps not the ideal outcome the ruling class had been after. But it did also bring a multi-decade boom to the city, heralding an era when the city was referred to as Marvellous Melbourne. The city expanded into the suburbs with an accompanying building boom, including civic buildings such as town halls, galleries, libraries, schools and churches. Melbourne University and the fantastic State Library were constructed during this period, and the 1850s saw the beginning of city-scale infrastructure such as Australia's first railway line, local telegraph communications and a clean water reservoir which piped water into the city. With all of this going on, while the gold rush was still attracting men to the goldfields, labourers' wages were exceptionally high, and Victoria was called the working man's paradise, not least because by 1856 the stonemasons' union had negotiated the eight-hour day. This was a huge deal, as only Australia and New Zealand managed this so early, despite lobbying around the world. Most other countries did not introduce such labour reforms until the early 1900s. So we'll leave the story here for today, with Melbourne and Victoria on the brink of all this excitement, but also with the early signs of some resentment simmering over how the government was trying to regulate the rush and maintain the existing class status quo, despite the times clearly changing. The next episode we'll look more closely at the difficulties between the diggers and the authorities on the goldfields, particularly at Ballarat, and the resolutions that were discussed. So finally, I want to recommend another podcast that you might like to check out this month. Now, I don't usually listen to true crime myself, as I'm just too wussy, and I find it all a bit confronting. But I know that there's a huge fan base out there, so if that is your thing, you might really enjoy trying... Australian True Crime, with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Emily is a journalist and an author of three true crime books. 
Michelle works across various media platforms, and their show often looks at cold cases, giving families and friends of victims a voice to talk about the ripple effect of crime, or they talk to the police involved in investigations, for example. If this true crime genre is for you, definitely give it a listen. They are very good. Also, as usual, I'll just remind you that the reference list for this episode and the links and images are posted on the Australian Histories Podcast website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. That's history spelt I-E-S. And I wanted also to mention that the historian and author David Hunt, who wrote the brilliant Gert and True Gert, which I've recommended in previous episodes, has also produced a few short live sketch animations which sit within the National Museum Australia's Defining Moments web pages. The one on the Australian Gold Rush is wonderful, as they all are actually, so I have included a link to that on my reference list too. It's well worth a look. Thanks for joining me again this month. Eureka Part 2 should be available on the last Friday of next month all going well. So now have a happy and safe few weeks and I'll talk to you then. Cheers. Cheers.